Good morning, Christ Central. I'm Andrew. I'm one of the pastors, and it's my great joy to bring to us God's Word today. Our passage is from Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. Let me read that for us, and let's give our full attention to the reading of God's Word. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, as we hear your word this morning and we touch on a, a topic that makes many of us want to hide, makes many of us uncomfortable and uneasy. Lord, we pray and ask that your truth would ring deep in our hearts, that we would learn the secret to repentance and find a deep joy in renewal. We know that this can only happen by you and your work and your spirit. Would that happen even now? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 51. It's a, a psalm that raises some eyebrows. Uh, we don't like to talk or pray about Psalm 51 because it implies that something has gone horribly wrong. Something is so, so wrong and it's our fault. It's our sin. This psalm gets at the seriousness of sin, but also at confession and repentance and renewal and restoration. It's one of the penitential psalms. And it's a psalm that I have prayed many a times in moments of my own deep guilt, in moments of my own shame. And this psalm has often spoke the words of my heart far better than I could articulate myself. And I hope that it can do the same for you. To understand this psalm well, we have to understand the background, and this is one of the Psalms that has a very clear backdrop. Psalm 51 was written by David as a response to his sins against Bathsheba and Uriah, and Nathan the prophet would be sent by God to confront him about his sin. You can find this background if you want to read it in your own time, 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 12. But I want to go there, and I want to set the tone for us. 2 Samuel 11 begins. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, and then it goes on to say, but he remained 
at Jerusalem. Now this is telling, and we want to pause here, that David, in the time when kings go out to battle, he didn't go out. You see, kings were supposed to go out. They would go out on behalf of the people, and they would fight for their people. And before uh, 2 Samuel 11, we have David as a king going out and conquering and fighting and winning so many victories and battles. And I wonder if maybe he started to get comfortable. He started to get used to winning, to coming out on top. And he lost sight of his neediness. He lost sight of the fact that he was a poor shepherd boy, overlooked, the youngest son, not recognized. Now he's a king. He's a big deal. Everybody knows him and he can pretty much do whatever he wants and get away with whatever he wants. I wonder if that's what got to him and if that's what has caused him to sin in such a horrific manner. One day he, on the rooftop of his palace, he sees a woman named Bathsheba bathing. And in his lust, he has her come to the palace and they get pregnant. And in his sin, in desiring to cover up his tracks, David arranges for the murder of Bathsheba's husband, the murder of Uriah. And he gets Joab, the captain of his army, to put Uriah in the front lines and then pull back so that Uriah is killed. And Uriah, it's important to know, Uriah wasn't just a random soldier. Uriah was one of David's officers. Uriah was one of David's original 37 mighty men. Before David became king, when he was on the run from the previous king Saul, Uriah was there with him, a brother in arms, fighting side by side. And here in this moment, of his sin and wanting to cover up, David would betray and have Uriah killed. Now I'm curious, and I think many of us are, what happened between the time when David is ruling as a king and then when Nathan comes with a pronouncement of judgment as a prophet sent from God? What's going on between then? And in all probability, it was this, that David, who seemingly got away with adultery and murder, continued to do what a king was, was expected to do. He would pray daily. He would engage in uh, the ceremonies of worship, in executing God's laws and the sacrifices. And I imagine he's just going through the motions. He knows what he's done. And he was likely in this state, many commentators say, for upwards to of a an entire year. His desensitized conscience prompted God to send Nathan, that he would be confronted by Nathan so that his eyes could be opened to the gross sin that he had committed. Now, today, you may not have lusted after a woman from the roof of your palace like David, but what about when you're behind closed doors in your room with your computer and laptop, maybe with your phone? Maybe for some of you, it's with a bottle or pills in your hands. Maybe it's the obvious sin of ill, poor treatment towards your family, to your spouse and kids. I know many of our families, as they begin virtual school and there's more tension at home, there's stress. Maybe this past week, you've even blown up 
and you've said hateful things that you regret and things that loom over your household that weigh not just in your household, but also weigh deep and heavy upon your own heart. Maybe it's the respectable sin of gossip that you want to be in a part of the in crowd to fit in as part of the group. And so you've slandered and torn other people down so that you might feel like I'm part of this group. Maybe it's the more subtle sin of your demeanor and how you've been overly selfish with everything. An attitude which leads you to have many sins of omission, a lack of love, a lack of concern, a lack of care for others. God, why would I need him? I'm cool doing my own thing. I'm good by myself. And even if you don't explicitly say that, if you haven't explicitly said that, I want you to ask, have you functionally lived that way? And one diagnostic test to ask and see if that is true is how is your prayer life? What prayer life? How is your time with the Lord in confession and sin? Is that happening regularly? Or maybe you've fallen into a state of self-reliance, a state of God neglect. Or maybe you're on the flip side and you're painfully aware today of the wickedness of your sin, that you feel unforgivable. You see, whatever kind of sins we have in our lives and in our hearts, and to whichever degree we feel it, Psalm 51 points us to how we ought to respond, what our posture ought to be. And so for a roadmap today, just three points, repentance, renewal, and our response, the results. Again, repentance, renewal, results. And we're going to start with our first point, repentance. Repentance begins by appealing to God's mercy. Psalm 51 of our text opens up in verse 1 saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. When we approach God like David, it's always on the basis of God's mercy. It's always on the basis of God's steadfast love. That's the only way that sinful people can approach a holy and perfect God. And the irony is that God's mercy for David began even with the sending of Nathan, that even in God's confrontation and rebuke, that's an act of mercy, an act of mercy to show that God hasn't given up on David and he hasn't given David over to his sinful desires and passions. Right now for you today, this morning, if you feel a little uncomfortable and bothered by your sin, if you feel confronted, perhaps God's mercy has come after you this morning, that he's not okay leaving you in that place. He's not okay giving you over to your own sins. And as we try and sometimes desperately try to run and ignore sin, God will not let those who are his be content with that be at peace with that kind of lifestyle. Just like any parent seeing their kid doing something, making bad decisions that are harming themselves, destroying themselves, they're going to intervene. They're not okay with that. And although today maybe our hearts have grown calloused and hardened to our sin, God in his mercy 
brings us back. The second component of repentance is to acknowledge our sin. But before we get into acknowledging our sin, acknowledging your sin, I want to touch on why sometimes that's so hard. There's a deceitfulness of sin. Sometimes we get dismissive. We get dismissive with our sins. It's not a big deal. Who does it affect anyway? Right? We get in this mode of denial that it's not even such a big issue. Or we get defensive. Well, at least I'm not as bad as this person. Right? We're quick to self-justify. We're quick to compare. Or everybody else does it. And so it's fine. We, we, we brush it off. And this is such a sinister way of dealing with sin because we're trying to let other people's sin cover our own sin. Right? Oh, I've only looked at pornography, but I haven't cheated on my spouse. Or maybe, oh, I've only thought about sexual things in my mind, but I haven't looked at pornography. I haven't actually looked up anything online. And it's this heart of comparison so that we can defend ourselves in our sin. Or lastly, we get desensitized. That we're just not even aware. We're totally blind to it. And usually this isn't a sudden thing. Usually getting desensitized takes time. It's a process. I think about Hebrews 2.1 that says a, a slow drift away from the faith. It's, it's a, a, a drifting. It's gradual. And before we know it, we're so far, we're so far off. We're so, so distant from God. We didn't even realize how we got there. You see, ultimately, the deceitfulness of sin is rooted in the conceitedness of sinners. It's really rooted in our pride, where we want to define right and wrong for ourselves. Justice and sin for ourselves. That we want to be the judge, the measure of all things. We want to be our own God. So if we understand the deceitfulness of sin and our eyes are open to what we have done, then what's next? The rightful response is to acknowledge, to own it, to own our sin. David does this. In verses 3 of Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4, it reads, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, David doesn't dismiss Nathan. He doesn't get defensive or show indifference, but he owns it. And I want you to know, David doesn't, there's things David doesn't say. David didn't say my punishment is ever before me. David doesn't say my consequences are ever before me. But he says my sins are ever before me. You see, sin often leaves consequences. And that was certainly the case for David. When Nathan brought this judgment upon David, David's family would experience bloodshed. His son with Bathsheba in him, his child would die. And one of his sons would even try to, uh, to take over the throne and to take David's wives as his own. It's a mess. There's terrible consequences for terrible sins. 
But you see, David doesn't, doesn't do a false confession. He's not more sorry he got caught. He's not more sorry because he has to pay the consequences, but he's sorry over his sin. And that's why genuine confession is different because many are troubled over the consequences of sin, few over sin itself. Now David goes on from acknowledging his sins to going a step further and acknowledging his sinful nature. Verse five of our passage says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is the doctrine of original sin. The tendency to sin that is innate in all human beings, which was inherited from Adam as a result of the fall. In other words, David is not just a sinner because he commits sin, but he commits sin because he is a sinner. Because sinning comes second nature for us as sinners. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. This, another word can be crooked, perverse, polluted. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick incurably sick. Who can understand it? You know, I think today it's interesting that a lot of times you'll hear people say, follow your heart. Right? Just look deep within your heart and do that. But the deeper you look within, the deeper the depths of darkness and despair. And this is why Christianity is inherently offensive. Now, some of you this morning, you don't want to want to hear this, that this is uncomfortable, that this leads you to feel uneasy about yourself. You see, the heart of the matter is always the matter of the heart, and Christianity says that the heart is incurably and desperately sick. In fact, it's dead in its sin. It's a heart of stone. And so David is not acknowledging just that I've sinned, but also I am a sinner by nature. I have sinned, I do sin, and I will sin. I am naturally inclined towards sin. And so today, would you hate your sin, but would you not ever be surprised by the fact that you sin? As we continue on, we get a stark contrast to in verse 6. We just talked about original sin and our sinful nature. And then in verse 6, you get, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. How do we get from verse 5 about sin and how wicked and how much we fall short to verse 6 about having God delight in the truth of our inward being? teaching us wisdom in our hearts. What can bridge that chasm? What can bridge that? And that's what we're going to turn to next. Second point, renewal. Renewal. In verse 7 to 9 of our passage, it says, Purge me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. And these are all verbs that are appealing to God. And renewal starts by appealing to God to do something that we cannot do for ourselves. That God has to do something about this, about our condition, about our conscience, because we can't do it for ourselves. The cure has to come from 
God. And to see how this can happen, I think the New Testament has so much to fill in some of these gaps. In verse five of our passage, we've talked about being born in sin. And in the New Testament, we're taught that we have to be born again. We have to be born again through Christ. In verse six of our passage, you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And in the New Testament, we find Jesus come as our wisdom, who became wisdom from God to us. In verse seven of our passage, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop was used often as a brush in the Old Testament. It would be dipped in blood. And if you remember in the Passover and Exodus, they would use hyssop to dip, it in the, uh, dip the brush in the blood and put it on the doorposts. Or in Leviticus, where they would sprinkle blood on those with infectious disease and they would use hyssop. Hebrews 9 makes it so clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. And so the New Testament teaches us where this cleansing comes from. It comes from the blood of Christ. Verse 9 of our passage, blot out all my iniquities. In verse 3, or in Acts chapter 319 of the New Testament, We hear, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. How do they get blotted out? It's only by repenting and trusting in Jesus and his finished work. I think blotting out is such a a, a unique way to put it because in our minds and sometimes in our conscience, we feel the record of wrongs, don't we? We feel the indictment against us that I did this, not proud of that. Yeah, I remember that time too. Not proud of that. And there is a list of wrongs that we need blotted out. We need it to be rewritten. And we find it rewritten in the blood of Christ as our sins are blotted out, as our charges are blotted out. And in its place, we have new words that are written of us. Pure, cleansed, perfect, righteous, holy. Words about Jesus that are now true of us. And in Revelation 3, 5, I love that it says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments made as white as snow, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. That God would blot out our iniquities, but that our names would never be blotted out from the heavens, from his book of life. See, Psalm 51 is about Jesus. It's fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, he knows our sin because our sin has become his sin as he bears them on the cross. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, in Christ, all of our sins are paid for and pardoned that all of our failures are covered in his forgiveness, that our sins, while they were many, his mercy, oh, is so much more. Archibald Simpson writes this quote, men are greatly terrified at the multitude of their sins, but here is a comfort. 
our God hath multitude of mercies. If our sins be in number as the hairs of our head, God's mercies are as the stars of heaven. Today, I think when we look at David's life, as we look closely, we see a lot of ourself. A lot of ourself. And it's interesting that David would be labeled a man after God's own heart. He would be labeled a man after God's own heart by God himself. And I think he's able to be labeled such because God was actually after his heart. God was after his heart. And more than that, God would give him a new heart. He would create in him a new heart. And just like with what happened to David, the same can happen to us. As we truly and honestly repent, turning away from our sins and towards our Savior and finding joyful, deep repentance uh, and renewal. But even greater than a renewal of status is this renewal of relationship. I just want to highlight verse 11 of what David cries out, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. You see, David gets at the core of what he wants most, and that is to be righteous before God is to be in a right relationship with God. You see, the whole point for being cleansed and renewed is to have a renewed relationship with God. David didn't want a God who just cleansed him and remained distant and detached and far away, but David wanted a close and intimate relationship with God. Is that what we care about most today? You see, the worry is not about losing salvation for David. That can't happen for those who are truly born again. But it is acknowledging that life feeling distant, having broken fellowship with God, feeling far and not intimate, that a life like that is a life that isn't worth living. It is fruitless. It is meaningless. Sin removes us from God's presence. Renewal restores us into God's presence. Sin brings sorrow and sadness, but it is renewal that brings rejoicing and gladness and in his presence are pleasures forevermore. After experiencing repentance and renewal, how can we not change? How can we not but respond and this is we, when we turn to our last point of the results, the results of this. The first is empathetic evangelism. Verse 13 says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Right? You'll, you'll share the good news when the good news becomes good to you. When the joy of your salvation brings you so much joy, that you cannot contain it. You want to share it with those around you. And in many ways, this is what happens each Sunday that we gather even virtually now to do this, but we are doing this with the goal to teach transgressors your ways that they might return to you. And we're the perfect people to do that, aren't we? When you know that I'm a transgressor, I'm a sinner, we're the perfect people to evangelize and share because we get it. 
we readily identify. There's so much to empathize over because we are more alike than different. We are all sinners in need of saving. Another way that we can help this evangelism is you may have heard behavior is often more caught than taught. And I think part of teaching is also modeling, modeling what it means to actually live a regular life of repentance, to live a life of a transgressor who is constantly seeking repentance and renewal. This past week, uh, Michelle and I, we, uh, we tried an unusual kind of a thing on a date, and we tried to ask some marriage tune-up questions, and one of the questions is this. Maybe you can ask it to, to your spouse. What is a good memory you have of the two of you from the last year? And what is a good memory you have of the two of you from the last year? And I got an, kind of an unexpected response. Michelle, my wife, her response was, well, the times where after we've argued or fought, the times when you try to make it up to me, you try to love on me, and you ask me for forgiveness. And I thought, man, that's a sucky thing if that's the thing you remember most, uh, a good memory. Uh, but as I thought about it more in light of even preparing this sermon, it was a timely reminder that repentance and confession and the demeanor of a broken and contrite heart is powerful. It's memorable. It's necessary. It's needed. And so for those of you who have spouses or parents, for your kids, would you model repentance and confession? Give them a picture of the gospel that even in our sins, when we fail and when we transgress, we have an opportunity to be restored as we repent and as we experience renewal. We need to be full-time repenters because we're full-time sinners. So would you model that in your life? And finally, the second result, genuine worship. Verse 14 through 17, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. I wonder if the months that David spent before Nathan confronted him, if those months of unconfessed confessed sin were silent from true praise, silent from a spirit of true, genuine worship. You see, God doesn't delight in people who just go through the motions, just doing, just doing it without thinking without being engaged, without our hearts in it. Just the external behavior, the external works. God cares about the internal. Verse 16 makes it so clear that the sacrifices that God is pleased by is a broken and contrite heart. Humble, repentant heart. That's what God cares about the most. An inner sacrifice of the soul must precede formal sacrifice with the lips and hands. Today, if you feel broken over your sin, if you are coming with a broken and contrite heart, 
God will not reject you. He will not. Come to him. Appeal to his mercy. And a final note on our posture before him when we have genuine worship. It's also this reminder that it's a corporate thing. That sometimes when we think about confession and repentance, it seems so individual. It's an individual activity, but it really does have corporate effects. Verse 18 to 19 of our passage is kind of interesting because it goes from David pouring out his heart and his experience to a sudden turn about do good to Zion, do good to Israel, build up the walls of Jerusalem, and now it's about the entire group. And if you remember when we have our membership vows, when we take those vows of I promise to protect the purity and peace of the church, it really starts here with repentance and confession. That it starts with our individual confession and regular repentance, making sure that we are not wandering and drifting off away from God. That's the beginnings of true corporate worship, pleasing to God. You see, our relationship with God is never just a private matter, but it's always connected to a desire to see renewal come to God's people as a whole. When there is corporate renewal, proper worship takes place. And so to conclude today, would you not be deceived by your sin? We cannot deceive God. He knows, he sees it all. And just like Nathan delivered God's word to David, today God's word comes to us. In his mercy, he comes knocking on our door. And if you hear this message today, then would you confess, would you repent? Would you acknowledge your sinfulness before God, your need for his mercy, would you find renewal of your status, but more importantly, your relationship with him? And would that cause you, would that result in a response of empathetic evangelism that the transgressors would become the teachers? And would it lead us to genuine worship from the heart? Let's pray. At this time, I want to give you a moment to confess and repent before God. I know earlier we had that time, and I'm so glad we have that time every Sunday to confess. But today, if you've withheld certain things, if you've felt like, man, I couldn't really come as I was, sins and all, because I just felt so guilty, would you now take this time to pray and lay it all out? at his feet.